Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. There are many activities that are focused on the outdoors, and often they're male-dominated, like hunting. Coming up, we'll talk with Dawn Freeland about her organization called Women Hunt Fish Camp 2. Are you one of them? Do you encourage your daughter as well as your son to hunt or fish? We want to hear from you coming up. Now, I grew up in western Pennsylvania where hunting is fairly common among adults and young people. It's so common in my home state that school districts in PA allocate the Monday after Thanksgiving as a vacation day to coincide with the start of deer hunting season by firearm. And growing up these days, we called these days off doe days. Hunting's not something many Americans still do today. According to a 2006 U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service survey, only 5% of Americans consider themselves hunters today. Some argue that we no longer need to hunt with every kind of food available at the grocery store. Others think it's inhumane. Where do you stand on hunting? You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Coming up, we're going to talk about how hunting encourages conservation, and we're going to talk to a local Connecticut man about why he started to hunt. First, the act of hunting is an activity tied to human existence, and it's played an important role in shaping American culture and history. For more, joining us by phone is Philip Dre. He's a historian and author of several books, including The Fair Chase, The Epic Story of Hunting in America. Philip, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, We know uh, when we think about hunting, we think about the contributions that Native Americans uh, played, uh, how uh, early European settlers uh, learned to hunt, and this uh, history of of hunting in America. When we read your book, Philip, uh, we learn about sport hunting and this idea of the so-called fair chase idea. Can you explain that for us? Uh, Sure. Uh, You had, uh, as you mentioned, of course, the in addition to Native American hunting, there was, of course, the early uh, settlers in America who hunted for subsistence. Uh, but at, beginning around the 1830s, 1840s, you began to see the, uh, the uh, appearance of uh, what they called gentlemen hunters, uh, basically men who uh, wanted to get away from the kind of quickly the sort of urbanizing America, and they wanted to get back into the woods, sort of challenge one another. So there was very much that kind of a manhood issue to begin with. And this was picked up by the appearance of some of the early sports periodicals uh, in America, which mostly were published in New York City, oddly enough, uh, which kind of championed this idea of gentlemanly sport heading off into the woods with one's shotgun and a, a picnic basket, this kind of thing. Uh, you talk about uh, particular figures that are have been pivotal when we think about uh, how hunting evolved in America. One of them was Henry William Herbert. Tell us about him. Uh, Henry William Herbert was an interesting man. He was an Englishman. Uh, he was someone who sort of been exiled to America by his family for some sort of misbehavior that has never been clearly defined. Uh, but what he, he wound up doing is uh, he he had a background in field sports, and when he arrived in America, he realized that he his talent as a writer uh, could be put to use writing about what he called woodland sketches, in other words, stories about sport hunting. Uh, he changed his name to Frank Forrester, which became his pen name, 
And he basically established the idea of the hunting story as a kind of gripping narrative that magazines proved very popular in magazines. It kind of set the table for that, basically, going forward. Uh, did he uh, have the opinion that American men at the time were soft and that they needed to be reconnected to the outdoors? Yes, exactly. That was one of, one of Frank Forrester's firm beliefs, that American men were allowing themselves to go soft, that they'd lost the connection to the great outdoors, and that he thought the British example would be good for them, basically, that they needed to embrace or confront nature. And what better way to do this? You know, at that time, there was no professional football, baseball, or other recreation. What better way than to go out into the woods uh, and bring home dinner? Now, when uh, the hunting fad became uh, more uh, popular, how did that impact uh, wildlife populations? We hear about how close the, the American buffalo uh, came to be decimated. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, it's interesting, too, that the hunters, and that's really where the fair chase ethos comes in, because interestingly enough, hunters from very early... Philip, are you there? So it looks like uh, Philip Dre, we're having trouble hearing him because he is joining us by cell phone, those pesky cell phones. Uh, I wanted to bring into the discussion because part of why we wanted to do the show is not just to focus on the history of hunting uh, in America, but to hear from people who actually hunt today. I said earlier in the show that hunting is on the decline. About, uh, I think it's 5% uh, of Americans hunt. Uh, but one of them is in studio with me, and his name is Aaron Snow. He was raised in Connecticut. And Aaron, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Good morning. So we were learning a little bit about the history of hunting. Hopefully we can get uh, Philip to, to back on the line. Um, but I'm curious, I would mention when I grew up in Pennsylvania, I knew a lot of people. My family actually, we didn't hunt, but a lot of my uh, classmates grew up in families that hunted. Is that, was that your, uh, is that how you got introduced to hunting? Uh, no, actually not exactly. My, um, my wife's family was uh, certainly hunters, and a lot of them are European. Some of them are based in Michigan. Uh, my brother later joined um, as a journalist and as an editor uh, the staff of some of the more popular outdoor magazines. So he brought me into some of it as a sort of peripheral interest. But ultimately, um, you know, I spent most of my time in the woods hiking, fishing, uh, doing just sort of normal outdoor stuff, feeling very connected to it. And later, in about my mid-20s, um, I came to the conclusion that I felt um, that if I was going to continue to eat meat, and um, participate in that, that there would be some value in trying to harvest an animal myself and see if I could be honest about that. And uh, the initial time that I went out hunting, I actually found it to be a little difficult um, and very emotional, uh, but also very rewarding. So to be able to sit there quietly as part of the environment and participate in what I ultimately see myself as a larger ecosystem um, and I can sort of resonate with uh, the caller that was just on, the guest, in the sense that it didn't feel soft, but I felt disconnected. And that's more how I would char uh, characterize my interest initially in hunting. Uh, I think Philip Dre is back with us. So we were talking about uh, uh, earlier about how when hunting became popular, um, you know, how it had an impact on wildlife and then how it eventually led to conservation efforts. Yeah, there's various species, whether passenger pigeons, buffalo, whatever, began to diminish. It was the hunters who were in the position to notice it at first, and they were the first ones to really kind of call attention to it. And basically that ethos of species protection on their part is what led ultimately to the conservation movement. And those were the pioneers, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, George Grinnell, William Hornaday. 
the people who formed what they called the Boone and Crockett Club to protect wildlife. Uh, before we let you go, uh, Philip, I did want to ask you when we talk about this idea of true sportsmanship and conservation, um, there were laws that were passed that uh, impact conservation efforts today, that being the Pittman-Robertson Act of the 1930s. Can you explain that for us? Uh, yes, that was a, basically what that is is an excise tax on hunting equipment um, that was put in place in the early 1930s and has proved uh, usually beneficial to conservation efforts, and it's still in existence. It's a way of taking money and giving it to the states, apportioning it to the states for conservation efforts. And the Pittman-Robertson funds uh, have been a real mainstay. Uh, they're not – the legislatures can't really tinker with them, and so they, the money goes directly to conservation forces. Uh, it's been a great example. Well, Philip Dragan is a historian and author of several books, including The Fair Chase, The Epic Story of Hunting in America. Uh, Philip, we hope to have you in studio uh, next time so we can talk okay. about this really uh, fascinating book. And I'm, I'm, a, I'm sorry that the phone connection isn't working for us today. That's okay. Thanks so much, Lucy. Again, this is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathangel. Today we're talking about hunting, and we want to hear from you if you're someone who does choose to hunt, and we want to know how you came uh, to be involved in this activity, uh, this sport. Uh, later on, we're going to talk about efforts to encourage women and girls to hunt, but I wanted to go back to our in-studio guest, uh, Aaron Snow, who uh, grew up in Connecticut. He was telling us a little bit um, before, we, f before we went back to Philip about what uh, led him uh, to start hunting, and you mentioned that that first time that you went hunting, uh, there was emotion involved, you know, involved. I'm curious if you could walk us through what were some of the things that you were thinking about um, the first time that you were able uh, to, uh, was it a, a deer that you were able to get? It was a deer. It was actually um, on what turns out to now be my um, wife's grandmother's farm in Michigan. And it was actually, her name is Jeannie Davis. She's a wonderful woman. She's an avid hunter herself. Um, it was a doe. And often the deer we take are doe. There's, there's not a lot of difference to us because our, our main objective is to um, get the meat and, and actually um, have it be part of our diet. The, uh, I suppose it's always emotional. I'll be honest with you about that. And the first time, I think it's just you understand you are taking an animal's life. You're not doing something lightly. And uh, quite literally, the first time I tried to pull the trigger, my hand did not respond. There was a, there was a hesitation there. And I sort of revisited why I was there. I know I'm a meat eater. I don't have um, an ethical conflict about being a meat eater. So I said to myself, well, what does it mean that I can't actually do this when I know people do this on my behalf all the time? Um, I sort of recomposed myself. I took a very ethical shot. The deer went down immediately. Um, I did what I was supposed to do for the most part, which is to sit still and give the animal time to relax. You don't want to stress it. You don't want to run up on it. And then uh, after some period of time, when it was clear that the animal was, in fact, down, I approached her and I just got misty-eyed and sort of thought, this is a beautiful animal. This animal had a wonderful life. And, you know, I very directly contributed to its death. I, in fact, shot and killed this deer. And then about 30 seconds later, I felt very comfortable with it. It's hard to explain how quickly the transition happened. Um, it was my very first hunting experience, certainly my first deer. Ran back up to the house. Jeannie came out. She helped me get the deer to a proper place. She fielded it, dressed it for me, taught me about it, and that was the first experience. Uh, we were talking about uh, hunting culture. Um, again, we're going to have a guest coming up who lives in the state of Michigan. I was talking about hunting culture just a little bit in, in Pennsylvania. What's the hunting culture here in Connecticut? Who are the people that hunt? Who are the people that you encounter in this sport? Uh, everyone. 
I mean, not everyone in terms of the population, but the cross-section. Uh, my accountant hunts. Uh, a guy who I know very well is a great friend of mine who I traveled to Nepal with in high school um, is an avid hunter. He and I have many friends who are hunters and many who are not. Um, you know, the people who choose to hunt, you know, ultimately, I think, are people who have been exposed to it at some point by somebody else. Or for some reason, they're sort of a, like, I want to get back to nature effort. And they'll go and they'll engage in the sport that way. But it, it, you'd really be surprised who is and who is not a hunter. There's no real clear definition of who that person is. There's, a, there's obviously the stereotypes. But most of the ones that I know um, and certainly the people I interact with, and, and I should say very carefully, all of the hunters I know are very ethical. They're very concerned for the environment. They're very thoughtful and safe about what they're doing. Um, maybe a small handful of them are kind of trophy-driven. Mm -hmm. It's easy to be enthusiastic about a big, mature animal because they're beautiful. And you sort of, there's what we call buck fever. Your, your temperature comes up, your blood races, your heart pounds, and you sort of have to get yourself in under control. Um, but for me personally, I feel that with any animal. Uh, so I would say really everyone hunts is t in terms of the demographics. Uh, and I'm encouraging my daughter, who doesn't need very much encouraging, to join me when she's old enough. This is where we live. Aaron Snow is a Connecticut resident who hunts, and we want to hear from you, too. Again, are you a hunter? What brought you to the sport? And what are the misconceptions out there about hunting today? We're going to talk more about that after the break. We're going to take your calls, too. That number, before I forget, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. When there are conversations about guns in America, often the discussion centers on firearms being used in mass shootings or in suicides. Yet guns are used in activities like hunting. It's a, a sport 11 million Americans participate in today. That's according to our previous guest, author and historian Philip Dre. He wrote the book, The Fair Chase, the epic story of hunting in America. We hope to have him back on uh, the air uh, to talk about his book. But first, did you grow up hunting? What is it about the sport that drew you to it? We want to hear from you. Again, the number 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Aaron Snow's with me. Uh, he grew up in Connecticut. He is a hunter. And I wanted to take some calls. Nick's calling from Brantford. Nick, go ahead. Hi. Hello? Hi, Nick. Go ahead. Hi. Hey. So um, I've actually been hunting ever since I was a little kid. Uh, my... my uh, my dad grew up out in Maine, so I've, I've, I've been hunting since I was probably about five or six years old. I'm about 26 now, and uh, my wife also hunts too. Um, I always like hunt hunting just because of the fact that sometimes when you go to the grocery store, you don't know where, where your meat's coming from and stuff like, like that. So whenever I hunt, I feel more of like a personal connection that something that I worked hard for was able to provide meat and food for my wife and kids. And Nick, you mentioned you grew up in Maine. I think of Maine as a big hunting state. What is the, the hunting culture that you've encountered here in Connecticut? So it's more like um, I, I pretty much hunt everything, uh, squirrels, tur turkeys, deer. Uh, so uh, sometimes I'll hunt cut coyotes mm -hmm. like uh if like uh if somebody's having like a problem with uh their with 
with like their uh, dogs being harassed and stuff like that. Sometimes I'll go and help them out. Well, thank you, Nick, uh, for calling in again on where we live today as we talk about uh, hunting. I want to go back to our in-studio guest, Aaron Snow, uh, who uh, began hunting. Was it in your 20s? Is that yeah. what you said? Yeah, it was about my mid-20s. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we think about misconceptions of hunters, what are some of the ones that, that you come up against, uh, uh, Aaron, or you've heard from others that you know? Well, I think generally there's a sense that people aren't safe, that they sort of have a disregard for the animal and maybe the other people who want to enjoy the woods. You know, I don't spend a lot of time in these conversations, but when I find myself in them or I see some social media discussions that I look at um, sort of from the from the sidelines, there's a lot of competition about, you know, who has the right to be in the woods. You know, we as hikers should be able to go out there and feel safe, which, of course, I support and agree with. And I think for the most part um, that that they actually are. Um, again, I'll reiterate the the folks that I've ever hunted with directly or who I discuss hunting with are very clearly concerned with their own safety, the safety of the people they're hunting with or near, uh, neighbors, property, you name it. So I think that's probably the biggest misconception. A lot of that is driven by older media, Disney movies, Yogi Bear cartoons, the, the hunter's usually a buffoon who's just sort of randomly shooting and you're hearing ricochets and mm-hmm. kind of not a very, I would say, accurate or fair depiction of what a hunter, re- how a hunter really behaves in the woods. Uh, when you mention social media, I, you know, I have to bring up uh, uh, photographs that people react very strongly to, especially mm-hmm. if these are uh, quote-unquote trophy hunts in African countries. I mean, what's your take uh, when uh, you see that uh, conversation happening online uh, when people you know, do believe it's inhumane? Um, I mean, to genericize it, I would say it's like most conversations online. It's ill-informed. It sort of exposes ignorance on both sides. I think it also highlights the impatience that each party has with the other in terms of truly wanting to understand their own the, the perspectives that people are bringing to those conversations. Um, you know, as it relates to things like trophy hunting in Africa, I personally don't engage in that. Um, I don't particularly have a judgment about it. What my sort of superficial and and at times slightly deeper uh, sort of research shows me about that, though, is the animals that are being hunted uh, typically by Westerners, um, usually for hire, you know, they're paying to be there, to be guided or to have the access to the tag or whatever else. Uh, Those folks, you know, are actually dispatching animals that the local population Um, rightly sees as a nuisance or as a literal threat. You know, a single elephant can wipe out a farm for um, a property owner in a day. There are times when the animals themselves, you know, they're not, we we take a very Western perspective. We see these animals on TV. We we only see their beauty. We only see their gentle side, little Attenborough-esque you know, perspective on it. But ultimately, these animals, they are not that kind of animal to the people who live there. These are animals that are still beautiful in their eyes. Often they're protein to these people, um, but often they are literally a threat. Um, you know, that's, that's, so there's more to it, I guess, is what I would say. There's, it, it deserves more thought, more consideration, and more time, like, like most things on social media. This is where we live. You can join our conversation today as we focus in on hunting. The number 860-275-7266. Fritz is calling from Lyme. Fritz, go ahead. Yes, hi. Good morning. Good morning. I just wanted to add to the perspective um, about when you're hunting, how you become part of nature. I'm a stalker. 
And so I don't sit, I move through the woods. And in order to successfully hunt that way, you have to be something other than human in the woods. You cannot be perceived by the animals around you as human. And when you do that, um, you see more life in the woods than you do, I think, at any other time or moving in any other way. As your guest there says, almost everybody I know who hunts, hunts for meat for their family or themselves. And um, when you hunt for meat and you're hunting in a way where you're becoming part of the woods, the actual killing of an animal, say a deer, um, is a period on the end of a long sentence or even a paragraph. Um, it is not the reason why you go out in and of itself. Well, thank you, Fritz, uh, for your uh, contribution uh, to our conversation. I wanted to, to uh, add another uh, perspective, too. Uh, Jack's calling from Norwich. Jack, go ahead. Hi, good morning. Good morning. Go ahead. We've got a couple of minutes, Jack. Um, well, I'm a hunter. I didn't grow up in a, a family that hunted. I had a friend who was a hunter, and he indoctrinated me into the sport. And I started with bow hunting back in the mid-70s when it was mostly primitive, meaning uh, recurve bows, long bows, uh, compound bows were, were coming into being, um, but I used a um, recurve bow. Anyway, I've, I've gone to Maine hunting. I've gone, I'm going to Wyoming uh, this November for pretty much the month of November to hunt elk. And it's just a great sport. And one thing I want to say is I don't like watching the TV shows that have all this deer hunting and big game hunting. They make it look so easy. And the, the commitment that you have to make to enjoy the sport and being out in the environment is, is so much more than what you watch on TV and them showing you, oh yeah, this is so easy. And it, it's really not. And being emotional as well, taking the life of, of a beautiful animal um, is very emotional. Well, thank but being a subsistence hunter, that's, you know, I think all encompassed in the sport. Well, thank you, Jack, uh, for your perspective. We've just got a couple of minutes before we go to break. I wanted to go back to our in-studio guest, uh, Aaron Snow. Uh, we heard uh, Jack talking about, again, this connection with nature. That's something that you mentioned, too. And it's not as easy as it looks when it's portrayed uh, in movies or on, on television. And in a way, our hunters in the state... in a, almost like citizen scientists, because depending on what you're able uh, to uh, kill during hunting season, a lot of the information will go back to the State Department of Energy and Environmental Protection and uh, to, to look at animal population in the state. That's correct. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, there's there's a whole bunch going on there. One, you know, when you when you sign up to be a hunter, there's the, the business about the money going to conservation that your uh, initial guest talked about. There is uh, the fact that when you actually take an animal and you go on typically these days to the online tagging system and you indicate, you know, what was it an antler or an antlerless deer? You know, how did you take the animal? Was it with a bow? Was it with a rifle? What time of day? Where were you? All the way down to the parcel. All of that data goes back 
and is invaluable to the people making those decisions and working on conservation. I would agree with that. And um, we were thinking when we think about uh, deer as vectors for, for Lyme disease, uh, how does that impact um, when uh, hunters are going out during deer season, which we're uh, in right now? Are there other diseases that impact deer and getting that information out there, but also in sense of um, then taking that meat back to your family? Is that a concern? There's other diseases that deer have as well. Sure. There are some diseases. We have uh, bovine tuberculosis. We have chronic wasting disease, um, you know. The, there is obviously concern with any disease about how that would ultimately um, be transmitted to somebody who's consuming that meat. Um, there isn't a lot of evidence that shows that any of that is actually a problem. And again, the hunting uh, of those animals participates in understanding and ultimately curbing those diseases. So in a particular hunting season in Michigan, it was you know, our responsibility to bring the deer to uh, Department of National Resource Officer and have them test for some of those illnesses to help track it and ultimately, I think, contain it. Uh, before we go to break, I just wanted to bring up uh, in the state for the past few years, there have been a fierce debate at the, the Capitol uh, from citizens who either agree or disagree with the idea that Connecticut should open up hunting uh, of bears. And I think Connecticut's one of the few states in this region that doesn't allow bear hunting. Um, the, the flip side of that is uh, people will say that it's not going to necessarily impact the population, but maybe we should be changing human behavior. So if you don't want these deers, uh, deer, or, uh, deer or bears in your backyard, I should say. Uh, don't have the beer, bird feeders up year-round. Uh, don't make it easy for a bear to think that this your home is a food source for them. Sure. Yeah. No, there's a, there's a lot of, um, again, I, I ultimately feel like it comes back to a disconnect. People often mistake themselves as looking down on an ecosystem. And a lot of technology, a lot of the fact that food is just available, pretty much whatever you want, uh, helps reinforce the idea that we live separately from this world. Uh, you could make the same argument with climate change. There's a lot of people who want to uh, turn a blind eye to their behaviors, whether it's clear-cutting land, overdeveloping property, like you said, leaving food out that actually attracts animals. You know, ultimately, because we are part of an ecosystem, I think it makes sense to participate in it. We are top predators. That's true. Um, if bear for whatever reason, ends up being an animal that ought to be hunted, I think it should be looked at objectively and analytically. Aaron Snow is a Connecticut resident who hunts. Today we're focusing in on hunting. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we're going to talk about efforts to encourage women to take up hunting. It's a male-dominated sport. But first, it's a Connecticut Public Radio's fall fundraising campaign. We cover a lot of different topics here on Where We Live. If you appreciate this program and Connecticut Public Radio, here's the number to call with your pledge of support. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow on Where We Live, what's the future of philanthropy? Uh, Jay Williams will be with us. He's president of the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving. And we're going to talk about uh, charitable organizations. And we want to know if this is something that you spend time thinking about, where your money goes. Again, uh, that conversation tomorrow. Now, today we've been focusing on hunting and learning more about the people in our own state who choose to hunt. One of them is in the studio with me, Aaron Snow. Uh, when we think about hunting, it's a, a male-dominated sport and activity. But there are some who promote this activity among women and girls. My next guest is one of them. Don Freeland is based in Michigan. She's owner and operator of Women Hunt, Fish, and Camp 2. Don, welcome to our show. 
Hi, thank you for having me. I just wanted to read a tweet we got from Mim, I believe, who writes, Women hunt in Connecticut, too. I'm looking forward to October 20th, opening day for small game and upland birds here. I will be out with my dogs and all the great friends I have made while hunting. So, Don, I'm curious, what led you to hunt? Oh, boy. That's, it's not just one one thing. I, I, there's several different um, thoughts and ideas had come along the way. Um, part of it is because of my dad. He loved, loved hunting. Um, he, he was always, always going out in the fall. Um, he passed away when I was um, just 11, so I didn't get much more from that after that age. And then my husband, he was an extremely avid hunter, and um, just having that around in our home and um, being out in the field and watching him and being part of that with him encouraged me. And then there has to be something within you. There has to be something that, that you want to do. This is something that you want to do as well. So I say it's a third of my dad, a third of my husband, and a third of me. If you mix it all together, that's how it came about. <laughs> now, Don, what kind of prejudices or stereotypes have you come up against um, as you began hunting? Well, some of the prejudice and the attitudes have been the hardest to overcome. Um, some, uh, some of the difficulties um, have been working with the gun store owners, um, property owners, um, some of the good old boys club. Um, but I, I believe that I've used my love of the sport to sustain my drive and become a successful hunter. And, and in doing so, I'm now encouraging other women to do that as well. Uh, the women that you're encouraging to hunt in Michigan, um, what kind of backgrounds do they have? Oh, we, they come from all different sorts. Some have been uh, raised uh, raised with uh, with hunting since they were just little girls, maybe rabbit hunting and moving on small game up to, on up to to the bigger game, of course. And then I have some that are just starting out, you know, maybe middle aged. They're just starting out. They they love the idea of self sustaining, taking care of themselves, being able to. Um, supply some good, healthy food for the family. Earlier, I was speaking to my in-studio guest uh, who's in Connecticut, Aaron Snow, um, who's a hunter, and we talked a little bit about the misconceptions or stereotypes around hunting. But what do women hunters face um, from uh, people who may not agree with hunting? Are they unfairly targeted when they're compared to their male counterparts? Absolutely. I truly believe um, that female hunters are targeted more against anti-hunters um, that I'm, for whatever reason, I'm not sure why, but um, they, they tend to go after them, especially in social media where we have a lot of these keyboard courage uh, uh, pe- soldiers coming out there fighting the good fight. I think they're going to change all our minds and <laughs> change the way we live. Um, of course, it doesn't work. Um, but a lot of it is targeted towards women. They do not get as many at, at men. You do, but not as many mm. more women are are picked on, I would say. Have you personally experienced that? I've, I've gone to your website, and you have lots of, of pictures of things that you've been able uh, to kill while hunting. Yeah, when I first started my business, um, I had I had received quite a few, oh, if I didn't get a death threat daily, then I wasn't doing my job. <laughs> that means I've, I've struck the chord with somebody, and they've, they've noticed what I've been doing. Um, but at the beginning, like I said, I got it quite a bit. I just learned to just block them, report them, delete them. And as soon as I knock that out, uh, knock that right off my social media, it tends to take care of itself. The longer I leave it there, or even if I wanted an open dialogue, it's just not going to happen. 
Erin, you mentioned earlier you have female hunters in your family. This is something that you are uh, teaching your daughter uh, uh, to also do. Um, how do you respond when you hear what Dawn is saying about some of the things that, that she and others have come up against? Um, you know, it's not surprising. I think people feel like picking on women is easier to do, which is a problem we have across the board. Um, so the fact that she might take a little bit more heat from anti-hunters doesn't come off as terribly surprising. It's disappointing and disheartening. Uh, as far as my daughter, Olive, she doesn't t- really need encouraging. It's, it's whether or not she's been discouraged, which I think is really what goes on. I think uh, both you know, young boys and young girls understand and see, especially if they're lucky enough to experience um, the process of hunting, which one of your callers commented on, is a year-round thing. You're looking for sign. Maybe you're grooming your own property to promote certain kinds of animals. You're thinking about how they move. You're studying all that stuff. And, you know, from the very beginning, my daughter was enthusiastic to participate in, um, you know, sort of the post-harvest activity, which is where the work starts, really. Now you have this animal. You have to very carefully treat the animal in a way that it ends up remaining healthy food for you. You need to field dress it properly. You need to get it um, either to a butchering station or, in our case, we butcher it as a family. My wife participates in it. She is fantastic in the kitchen across the board. And for whatever reason with the game meat, she's a wizard. And so my son Eli, my daughter, they have very um, sort of fluidly and effortlessly engaged in that process as well. And, um, again, I think it's a matter of are the are the sort of pressures in society – Uh, pushing people at an early age away from this or allowing them to do what I think is very natural, which is to move toward it. So, yes, I definitely want my daughter to hunt if she wants to. Um, But again, I think that's a matter of either holding her back or letting her do what she would normally want to do. How do you, I know uh, hunting laws vary from state to state. So how do laws, I guess, discourage, I mean, I'm wondering about the Connecticut law. Uh, I read somewhere that um, the younger uh, uh, a child starts uh, going with their parent or parents to hunt, that can then foster um, a lifelong uh, passion or interest in hunting. But if it's uh, delayed uh, by the teens, uh, yeah. you may not be interested and you may never pick it up, Aaron. I'm curious about Connecticut's law. Yeah, I think Connecticut's laws are unfortunate. You know, they require um, children to be much older than they need to be to actively participate in hunting. And so unless you make a concerted effort to bring them with you, mainly as spectators, I mean, they can't actually do the hunting part, but they can sit with you. They can participate in looking for animals. Uh, Last year, my son was the one who spotted a beautiful eight-point buck coming out of a stand of Christmas trees. And I was looking over my shoulder at the wrong thing, trying to figure out what I was hearing. It turned out to be turkeys. So, you know, that was a wonderful experience for him. But I think it's true that if kids are kept away from that, they develop other interests. And by the time they're actually legally allowed to come out and hunt, um, they've just moved on to other things. Uh, Dawn Freeland's also with us. She's a Michigan-based owner and operator of Women Hunt Fish and Camp 2. Dawn, how um, ha- is the hunting committee, community, would you say, today more receptive to women than when yeah. you first started? Oh, absolutely. It has changed, just like I said, even in the eight years that I've owned Women Hunt 2, it has changed greatly. And, of course, I was hunting long before that. <clears throat> it has been um, widely more accepted. It is just becoming more of the norm. Um, some of the businesses, the companies are even taking notice um, and making more of the, the outerwear for women, um, gearing it towards them. 
um, some of the, the gun manufacturers are, are changing some of the weight, the stocks, the length, the barrel length, um, changing it up for women so that it's readily, more readily available. We have more options than we ever have. We're getting a tweet from a listener, Ben, uh, who writes, hunting is unnecessary and cruel. Just take a photo of the animals instead of killing them. Uh, Don, how do you respond uh, to that sentiment that's out there? Well, I would be starving if all I have is a pitcher for dinner. I need to have some substance on my plate. And the whole point of all of this is, again, to feed the family. Uh, it's, a, it's a good, healthy, nutritious, uh, organic meat um, in our home, we rarely buy meat other than chicken and uh, perhaps lunch meat. Uh, for the most part, everything that we have taken afield. Uh, Aaron, did you want to add anything? I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think a couple things about that. One, uh, saying that something's unnecessary, therefore you shouldn't be allowed to do it, would eliminate a lot of the things we do. We do a lot of things that aren't truly necessary. Um, but I would also take issue with the fact that it is or isn't necessary. Deer population is, um, you know, a, a problem, quite frankly, and, and ethical hunting is one of the ways that we can check against that. And also, as Dawn points out, the food is healthy. Um, we see it in the same way that we see keeping our chickens, um, having bees, you know, taking some of the chickens for meat, having their eggs, mm -hmm. having a vegetable garden. It's part of a larger construct. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of benefit that comes from hunting, not just the actual taking of the animal and the impact on the populations, but the experiences out there, to be out there in nature and actually witnessing what it is that's at stake when ecosystems disappear. Uh, so I, I, don't, I don't have any animus toward the guy who tweeted that, but I would argue that he should educate himself further and look deeper at the issue. This is where we live today. We're talking about hunting. Our guest, Aaron Snow, who's a Connecticut resident, and Don Freeland, who lives in Michigan, owner and operator of Women Hunt, Fish, and Camp 2. You can join us, 860-275-7266. Cliff is calling from Farmington. Cliff, go ahead. Uh, hi. I wanted to talk about my uh, one and only hunting experience, which was um, out with my brother, who at that time was a hunter. Um, I shot a bird. He dropped down from the tree. Uh, it was a shocking thing. Uh, I went over, examined the bird, and there was this one little piece of metal in his head. And the feeling that came over me, and I'm not an anti-hunter, except for myself, uh, the feeling that came over me was, was horrible. It was uh, this just seemed totally sort of unnecessary, uh, and left me with a really uh, bad feeling. Uh, so I, I, that was the last time I ever hunted. Um, I still can feel bad about it when I mention it. Um, so I'm also a photographer, and uh, I've had wonderful experiences photographing nature, uh, in, including uh, deer and uh, moose. Um, uh, I, I remember one time, um, you know, being in the woods, falling asleep against a tree, opening my eyes, and a deer came within about five feet of me. Uh, we both were a little surprised. It was one of the most treasured memories I have. It was really wonderful. So, well, thank you. 
Oh, I'm sorry, Cliff. I'm going to have to cut you off because we've just got a couple of minutes, but I do appreciate you calling um, from Farmington. Uh, before we run out of time, I, I did want to ask both of our guests, uh, you know, I've mentioned a couple of times now, um, based on surveys from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, you know, hunting is on the decline. Five percent of Americans are hunting today. When we learn about how conservation funds are tied to this activity, when uh, um, equipment and firearms are, are bought um, and the taxes that are collected for conservation, is that a concern uh, for you, Aaron, uh, when, when you think about hunting on the decline and where these dollars will come from for conservation in our country? Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially in the current environment, there's not a lot of money going toward or even a lot of concern going toward pre- preserving the environment. You know, and it's also important to note that, that those taxes are on handguns, they're on ammunition, they're on um, archery equipment. So this even the peripheral shooting sports that aren't directly tied to hunting are actually supporting the conservation efforts. And the, it's, it's, if you read carefully on the act, the number of licensed hunters actually is one of the key drivers to how much of the money goes to your state. So if Connecticut's declining, we're getting fewer dollars to actually manage our habitat and conserve the land that people care so much about. Uh, Don, before we go, uh, again, your organization works to encourage women and girls to hunt. For parents of daughters or young girls who may be listening, um, advice for them on where to begin? Absolutely. Um, what, first thing, first and foremost is you need to take a hunter safety class. Talk about um, safety in, in all regards, um, you know, in the field. Um, there's also a lot of groups that they can join. Um, so they'll feel more, more safe. They'll feel more comfortable out there. And then encourage them without being pushy. Um, there's a fine line there. And, of course, num- number three is be patient. No matter what, you need to be patient. This doesn't come natural to a lot of people, and it really helps if you just take the time and just explain things. And sometimes you have to do it two or three times for, it to, for them to understand and grasp the knowledge. Well, Don Freeland, again, we appreciate you joining us for just a little bit uh, of your day. And again, we're going to tweet out information about your organization uh, at Where We Live. Don Freeland, thanks again. Thank you so much. Have I'll, a good day. I also want to thank Aaron Snow for making the drive up uh, to Hartford uh, to come in and talk about his perspective as a local hunter. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks for having me. This is uh, Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by senior producer Lydia Brown. Uh, coming up in the next couple of weeks, we're going to have gubernatorial candidates in the studio. Earlier this week, we talked about whale evolution, uh, the future of health care. We cover it all here on Where We Live. We give you the opportunity to join the conversation. If you appreciate this program, please support it, Dora during our fall fun drive campaign and thanks.